0: good afternoon everyone and welcome to Planet Talks. Um, before we start today, um, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the lands of the Guarana people of the Adelaide Plains and I'd like to acknowledge them and their elders and all First Nations around Australia and uh, pay respect to their stewardship of these lands and this country for time immemorial. And stewardship of, of the environment is really something that's going to be a major theme for us today. My name's Michael Harvey, and I've got the great good fortune to be the director of the Botanic Gardens and State Herbarium, which actually also includes Botanic Park. So I'm not only the host of the session today, but uh, our organisation is the host of WOMAD. Uh, So thank you all for being here, and I'd really like... And uh, on behalf of all the staff at the Botanic Gardens, uh, we're just thrilled to have WOMAD back here, and uh, big thanks to the crew at WOMAD Adelaide. So today, for Bug Life, we're, we're going to be talking about uh, the insect world, and to do that we have an, a genuinely international panel uh, We've brought with us three people who absolutely love bugs and insects and have dedicated their lives to them. Uh, so I'll just introduce the panel and then we'll get started. So we have uh, Katja Hergendon, uh originally from the Netherlands. Uh, Katja is a behavioral ecologist and an entomologist specializing in bees and pollination and uses the beauty and significance of bees to promote revegetation in urban areas and in rural Australia. Katya works as a research scientist at the University of Adelaide and focuses on sustainable agriculture. We have Rocio Ponsareas, uh, originally from Mexico, a conservation scientist working at Australia's National Science Agency, CSIRO. Um, uh, Rocio came to Australia for PhD studies and now works for the CSIRO Conservation Decisions Team – heavy responsibility there, isn't it? – in Brisbane. But recently she's explored environmental, health and cultural benefits of edible insects as a potential source of human diets. Uh, She's authored the CSIRO's Edible Insect Roadmap Report of April 2021. So we'll talk a bit about that later. And finally, uh, Richard Glatz. Uh, is uh, the Australian on the panel um, and is affiliated with the University of Adelaide and the South Australian Museum. He's the chief editor of Australia's leading insect science journal, Australian Entomology, and has a broad background in entomology and researched the insect ecology of Kangaroo Island since 1998. He's worked on the discovery of a new primitive moth family and the establishment of the Kangaroo Island insect collection of over 60,000 specimens. So thank you all so much for joining us today and, and sharing your expertise. We'll start, though, I'm I'm going to ask you all about your collective love of insects. Uh, If you could just, each of you, uh, maybe starting with Katja, talk a little bit about what is it about insects that fascinates you, and maybe your favourite group of insects.
1: Okay. Um, Welcome, everybody. I uh, really love insects and have done so from a very young age, and mainly have always been interested in behaviour. Now, in my career, I could choose at some stage between studying apes and monkeys and studying insects. But I'm a scientist, and I like experimental research as well, so I chose insects. Because nobody cares if you pick off a leg, right? So, <laughs> so But then I uh, specialized in, in social behavior of bees, and, and that really fascinated me. How do you get from Uh, uh, a solitary bee to a system where the queen, the mother, uses her daughters to get a higher reproductive output herself. This is a a fascinating question. And I thought that to study that, I needed to study more primitively social systems to understand the evolution of that. And that's when I specialized on a group of bees Called the carpenter bees, and among the carpenter bee, we uh, we've got we've got so much choice in what is our favourite insects. It's not it's there there can't be one really. <laughs> but among the carpenter bees, among the bees, there are twenty thousand in in the world, sixteen hundred and fifty known in Australia, but we don't know them all yet. But there are eight carpenter bee species, and my favourite must be the green carpenter bee. Why? Well, we know a lot about it. We understand it well. It's gone extinct from Victoria and from mainland South Australia. It still occurs around Sydney. And it's hanging on on Kangaroo Island. Uh, There's is just for very few. So that must be my favorite bee of the moment. Lovely.
2: Mm, <laughs> Rosia. Yeah. Uh, well, insects. I love insects. Um, it's, it's very difficult to, to find one species, one type of them. I, since I was very little, I got really interested in them because my cousins, every time that they went to, for a holiday, they brought me back one of those um, beetles that w- had li- really beautiful, shiny colors so since then. But then I got very interested in, in eating insects because when I was uh, finishing my, my undergrad degrees in Mexico, there was this strike, a student strike, that lasted for like nine months. So my, there was no no lessons, no nothing. So my parents were getting a bit anxious that I wasn't doing anything. And then a, a friend of mine said, "Look, let's start a project about edible insects, because in Mexico eating insects is it's also very important for cultural reasons, and they are more available than here." So we started um, researching about the, the 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 properties of of the grasshoppers mainly, but also different ones. And then we started putting together different recipes and going to the pl- pub- public plazas and sharing the information and so yeah it was a great time during that strike and since then I, I become became very, very interested in eating insects. So your, your favorite insect is the edible one. So which one tastes the best? I guess that depends on the person, right? <laughs> <laughs> but here in here in Australia I really like the, the crickets. Like roasted crickets. But in Mexico we you probably know that in Mexico we put lamb and chili to everything. So any insects with lamb and chili, delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect.
3: And Richard, you've 60,000. There's a few to choose from there. Yes, another insect lover. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, I think for me, the, the diversity of insects was what attracted me to them, just the sheer mm. number of them, combined with that, we really don't have uh, a good idea about them. So when I was in, first went to uni doing biology, they were saying how these large numbers of species and that we, there was many we didn't know about so I thought here's somewhere where this discovery to be made pretty well and the other thing was I guess that uh, they're just so different to us so things like apes, Katja, were a bit boring to me I think because I could identify with them a bit or something but uh, (laughs) yeah what I liked was the the weird life cycles, the way they interact with a lot of other animals in close ways things like that so that was the kind of scientific interest for me. Uh, I don't really like to pick favourites. My favourite, I think, would be just because of personal reasons. So the the moth that I found on Kangaroo Island, because it was a a new family, a beautiful insect, uh, had a tight association with an ancient plant. It's an ancient species. that was named after me, that was good. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, it's <That's laughs> oh, we a have to... that one. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Well, look, the theme of today's session is the idea that this is an insect world and we're just living in it. And I know, speaking of, you know, from the Botanic Gardens point of view, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, what came first, the insect or the flower? Um, no insects means no flowers, no plants, no... So one of the things I'd like the panel to reflect on is just the sheer scale, the numbers and the impact that insects have on the world.
1: The, <laughs> the, 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 well, without people, there would be a living world. Without insects, there wouldn't be. This is, this is the long and the short of it. Insects are so very important. And uh, they're important because of sheer numbers, right? They are... I mean, I've, I've, I've tried to find out how many insects there are, and. Somewhere I read, well, when you start counting numbers, it would be around 10 quintillion. Now, I had to look up quintillion. Um, It's, I believe, a one with 11 zeros. That's numbers, abundance. And then species. In the world, I believe we know 1 million. I believe the estimate is 7 million species. So we haven't got anywhere yet describing them? Anybody?
3: Well, even what the actual number is, is one of the big questions of biology, I think. So we, like I said, the first thing I learnt in biology is that there's lots, but (laughs) lots of different people have tried to put numbers on this and basically they haven't been able to do it. So we know a certain number of insects from certain environments and basically people have used different methods to extrapolate out what the total is. And basically they range from 5 million to 30 million, I've seen an estimate of, based on what was found in tropical canopy. So basically, we really don't know, and there is not an accepted answer, but it must be in the millions of species. And so that is more than plants, animals, easily, sort of thing. Right.
0: And and that, Rossi, when you're thinking about, you know, ecological decision-making, the insects must factor massively there.
2: Yeah, they are. One of the big problems with the insect that that we don't know about the insects is that we don't know how threatened they are. So if you look at the um, the protection act, rarely you can find insects there. So if we don't know what they are, how can we protect them?
0: It's a, a, and one of the things, there is a, a slice of human self-interest. We, we are self-interested creatures a lot of the time. Um, and so I was going to ask the panel, collectively, to talk a little bit about well, what do insects do for us? What do insects do for humans?
1: Yeah, I, w- I will take the first one, because I'm going to pull you up a bit from that question, because I don't think the important question is what do insects do for us? because. Insects are there in their own right. Not only that, insects are, because of their abundance and because of their numbers, food for all our furry and feathery friends, or most of our furry and feathery friends. Think about a wheelie wagtail. I encounter a wheelie wagtail every day. It relies completely on insects that fly for all of its food. Now, we wouldn't have that wheely wagtail without insects. And that holds, oh, it will soon be Easter, we'll get the Easter bilby, 40% of its diet is insects. Yeah. So um, that is really where the importance is. Now, I get a lot of joy from seeing that Willy Wagtail. Thank you, insects.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. But beyond food, they do so much more, don't they?
1: Yeah, well, in, in
3: agriculture, they play a big role. So in, in the native environment, uh, they regulate each other's population. So you've got parasites parasitoids, we call them, which is a parasite that kills its host, uh, and predators, so lots of insects do those roles. Uh, But yeah, it's the same for agriculture. So we've kind of now got a system where in the 50s, chemicals became uh, a very effective way to treat insects, there's no doubt about that, and so a lot of the farming systems have followed down that path. Uh, But what that means is a lot of these ecosystem services that I've just spoken about, Haven't worked in agriculture, uh, but they can. So, a a lot of uh, farming systems now they are looking at ways to usually involves more vegetation, but getting insects into the system because uh, they do these regulatory things. So, for example, on the west coast of South Australia, uh, where a lot of the vegetation's gone, uh, if they have a good wet year, uh, like you're growing canola, you have a good wet year. Uh, It's good for your crop, but what you get in a place like that is uh, weeds that are very closely related to canola, like skeleton weed. They're they're all brassicas, they're very similar plants. Uh, And those weeds harbour basically a virus vector. So you have these weeds, there's an aphid on it, it can take a virus into your crop very quickly. Uh, But the thing is, if you have a lot of the predators or parasitoids of that aphid there already. Uh, basically, they knock down the, the population of the pest, and the, the, the movement of the virus into the crop is slower and it doesn't reach as high a level. So, in some cases, you can keep it under an economic threshold. So, you can get a bit of damage, but not actually spray because it's more costly to spray. So, uh, that's just one example. But, yeah, insects are, uh, and other invertebrates are so tightly interwoven with other species uh, that that's where this benefit comes from. Yeah. And
0: I, I think we were talking earlier about this, this fact that there's so many plants and insects that are completely intertwined that you take out one you take out the other.
3: Yeah and probably more than one yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Of course your question initially went to the point of pollination it did. because pollination is of course one of the very clear roles that insects have and most people think about bees, most people think about honeybees but our crops are pollinated by a variety of insects, including bees, they have a really big role to play. So, um, I can rattle off some data here, 70% of our crops rely to some extent on pollination surfaces by insects. That 70% of our crops represent 30% of our diet. Why? Because Part of our diet, the staple foods, potatoes, lentils, beans, rice, and other grains, do not rely on insect pollination. So 30% of our diet, and that 30% of our diet has got most of our folate in, it. folate is really important, especially for for pregnant women, and a lot of vitamin C. It includes multiple vegetables. uh, nuts and, um, and, and, of course, things like zucchini, watermelon, uh, and, and other vegetables. Um, that service, in total, is done by honeybees and other species and represents about 10% of agricultural GDP. So that is quite considerable worldwide.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I believe there's a, a, another example which none of us had heard of before, to, well, I hadn't heard of before today, Rosia.
2: Yeah, uh, the edible insects. We can complement our diet by eating insects. Um, depending on the species, they, have, they will have different nutritional profiles. Um, the insects have, tend to have really high, qu- high quality protein. They also have, some insects have really high um, omega-3, even more than salmon. Um, some insects have acid, uh, folic acid, um, vitamin C, green tree ants that are from the Northern Territory, they have high contents of, of vitamin C. So, they are, And I think they're tasty. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we might, we might jump there now. We, we did yeah. have a conversation among the panel about whether we should bring some insects out for us to <laughs> taste test for you all. Um, the decision was made that with these microphones, the sound of crunching might come through a little too strongly to be tasteful for the audience, but I think we've got some images um, yeah. so that we can put up of, of edible insects and things that we may like to consider. So, so that's uh, Ratio, a, that's a us through moth. these.
2: That, that is a muff, and um, I haven't tried that yet, but apparently it has a nutty flavor and the texture is like scrambled eggs. And, oh, that's really cool. So, on the left, the spoon on the, on the sorry, on, on my on that side, on my right, are green tree ants. And I don't know if you've seen, probably, um, the, there is a gin that I saw here in Australia with green tree ants. So are those uh, they are, they're also really tasty, really tangy, uh, very lemony. In the middle, there are roasted mealworms. They taste a bit like, I don't know. Uh, to me, it reminds me like pork rind, rind? It's like the, the, the okay. yeah. And then is roasted crickets. And on the far end is cricket powder. And you can use cricket powder to enrich your foods. You can substitute some of the flour in your baking and with cricket powder. And you you won't taste it, but you get more of the protein in your your diet. And you can also buy already made uh, products made uh, with cricket powder, like pasta, corn chips, different things. And so look. (laughs) People love, in, like, especially kids, I have, I have noticed that kids are more open to try them and they quite, quite enjoy
0: them. I'm loving some of the faces I'm seeing here when that came up.
2: <laughs> 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 and you can also buy like, the, the roasted crickets or mealworms already pre-flavoured, like um, rosemary and chilli or salt and different, different types of... So. And, and are these ants up here? Oh, these are green tree ants. This is a close up of the green tree ants that are in the. You, you can make a gene ant tonic.
0: So the, but the gene and the tonic saying. can both be managed through the insect wealth. Fantastic. So, and if people wanted to go and explore edible insects, uh, is, is that just a Google search away?
2: Yeah, yeah, you just you can you can buy them online. There are a few uh, companies here in Australia that are producing and and uh, selling the, the roasted insects or products already made. And some specialized, specialized shops like IGAs as well, you can in, in some cities you can find them as well.
0: So there's your challenge. Go hard. Um, <laughs> no, so they, they, they feed the animals we love. They feed us potentially. They regulate a- agriculture, they, they provide pollination which underpins agriculture, all of these things that insects do for the world in general, not just for us. Yeah. Um, to what extent, I mean I, I know, and we had this conversation beforehand, we remember driving around and seeing so much bug splatter on our windscreens, but that's declined. Um, are insects, or to me anyway, when I, my, I'm, I'm not seeing as many on the windscreen of the car or around the place, um, are insects in trouble?
3: Uh, well, there is increasing evidence for that. So there's very few cases where um, people have known a lot about the population of an insect in the first place, mm-hmm. uh, and then have seen a decline that they can be sure about, and it's not a seasonal fluctuation. So that's the, the issue we have, is there's a lot of heterogeneity in the landscape, so they, they occur differently mm-hmm. in the landscape, and their populations can vary a lot year to year, just from natural causes. Uh, but yeah, it does seem to be that there are declines now. There's increasing evidence of it. You would have seen in some of it in the media. So the bogong moth was mentioned uh, recently, because mm. the populations of those have crashed in the last few years. Uh, yeah, and there's, there are a few other indications around the world, and we know the climate is changing, uh, that insects are cold-blooded. So they're as warm as the environment pretty well, and their and f- the phenology, like when they come out in the season and when they have their different stages and all that can change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the evidence is increasing. It looks like there are declines, but uh, it's a new field of research really. What you'll probably see in the next decade is that because we know there are these declines, people will look into it more and you'll get the hard data. Yeah. Yep. Yeah,
1: yeah um, well, I I really know a little bit about bees and not much else, but I know that a lot of our native bees depend on native plants, and where those native plants have been knocked out, and this is large areas they will not occur anymore because they can't find food. Mm. Uh, We haven't got the data here, but I am Dutch and I follow what happens in the Netherlands, where they have got data per square kilometer of what occurs there. Um, What we can see there is that in the last 60 years, 14% of the bee species, so one in seven bee species, have disappeared, vanished from the landscape. So that is a lot already. And on top of that, 55% of the bee species are now on the IUCN red list. So that, uh, it gives me goosebumps to talk about that, really. And it wouldn't be very much different in Australia, because we've, we've lost so much habitat. It's, it's incredible. So, so yeah, uh, I am personally really worried, not only about bees, but about insects in general.
0: So when, when we, we talk about the threats being a changing climate and the loss of habitat, but are, are there other things that are likely to be causing that?
2: Pesticide well, Pesticides, use. yeah. And that's another good thing about edible insects. Like, For example, uh, some of those insects that are pests, like the locusts, we could eat them if we were not using pesticides in the areas that they are growing. Um, but also, uh, another good, re- like uh, I forgot to say before, if, if, if we want to eat insects, please don't go and grab them from your garden. <laughs> we don't want to affect the populations and we don't know if the garden has had any chemicals, so we don't, yeah, please do not do that, just buy them from the shops.
0: Yeah, so we, I mean, one of the things we've talked about is diversity, that, that actually the biodiversity of plants and the biodiversity of a region has a direct relationship with the diversity of insects. So anything that represents a diminution in biodiversity in one area is going to have a knock-on effect to insects. And one of the things we were talking about earlier was the way in which we go about agriculture, which is very often about a monoculture. It is about single groups of plants rather than a, a diversity. Um, in terms of the way we approach the, the the agricultural side of things, are there things we can do to to improve the world there?
3: Well, I think it is gets down to habitat. Uh, I think native vegetation is probably the biggest way to impact invertebrate populations, positively or negatively. So uh, Australia has a lot of endemic insects that only occur here, and they're adapted to, say, eucalyptus, so that's basically an Australian thing. Uh, Yeah, so if you consider one species of eucalyptus, it's possible that it has 10, 20, 30 things that only are living on that species, and that's common. Uh, and the moth I talked about before yeah. is only on Colitris gracilis, uh, uh, native, one species of native pine. And, so, and, and that's the norm in a way. So yeah, as you start taking out these plants, you're probably taking an order of magnitude out of species that directly rely on them. So some some insects, like the honeybee, it's so successful because it's basically relies on... Lot, it can rely on lots of different plants and adapt, but that's the, the exception. The rule is really that these things... That's, I mean, that is the basis of the biodiversity, is that they have a niche that other things don't. And so that's what drives the biodiversity, and that's also what takes it away when you start taking these basal things out of the environment. So when I said before, the numbers haven't gone down, that's in where they haven't cleared. Because when they've cleared, yep. they're gone pretty well, yeah. yeah. And I'm conscious yeah. catching
0: revegetation is a word that appears in, in your background there, so...
1: Absolutely, but anybody who was here yesterday and heard Luke Price talk will know that he uses the three R's, which is retention. Uh, so, retain, restore and reconstruct. And I would put the emphasis on retain because it is so difficult to get back what you've destroyed. It is so hard, especially in Australia, because all the stars have to align to get your vegetation back. This year was a good year for revegetation, but we've been through some shocking years where people put plants in the ground and they just don't survive. Mm. So, um, and it's really hard, especially, I mean, we can plant trees, but to get an undergrowth back, it's... So difficult and it's such a slow process. And then we have to be very careful with it as well in terms of fire. Uh, I love to talk about bees and we've got the Banksia bee as, a, as, a, as an example. Now the Banksia bee is a bee where the female collects pollen and nectar only from Banksias. Now Banksias has got lots of food when it flowers. The male protects the cone for the female to forage there, right? In return, he probably asks for a mating. Well, it's a male. Um, But um, banksia is very fire-prone, and it can take a very long time for a banksia to flower. And in several locations, we are losing our banksias due to our fire regime, which we impose on the landscape. So we have to be so careful how we manage that. But retain is the most important thing we can do. Restore is the next thing. And reconstruct is the hardest. Yeah. Cool.
0: And uh, I guess one of the things to reflect for, for the audience here is if, if, if we've talked about doing things at a, a society level, but at an individual level, are there things that people can do uh, individually to, to assist the, the insect populations and insect diversity?
2: Well, I still go with <laughs> uh, complement our diet with insects. Because um, we can farm insects. We don't need to clear more land. That will mean like less habitat loss. We can grow insects in shipping containers close to the city. Uh, we can feed them uh, food scrapes. So we don't need to grow extra food for them. We need very little water if we feed them um, fresh food. Um, if we use natives, we might not need to, to climate control their environment because they are adapted to these conditions. So it takes a lot of the boxes. they're high in nutrition and tasty, and why not? And it's not only for us, like there are now companies that are making pet food out of it, with insects, um because in Australia there are like 20 million of pets, cats and dogs, so that's a lot of animals that, that need to be fed as well. so why um yeah, that's. So there's, there's a change but, uh, to our agricultural and yeah. our shopping practices.
0: Yeah. R- Richard, if, if people in the audience were to do one thing different, what f- from your mind would that be?
3: Well I think it gets down to native vegetation and a variety of it and mm-hmm. reducing pesticide use as much as possible because most of those things are not specific to what they kill. Yeah. So there's no real way to get the nasties out of so it. Uh, yeah.
0: as a gardener, chasing biological control, is that achievable today? Yeah, at a
3: well, level. well, really, you shouldn't need to. If you've got a variety... It's the same yep. thing as I was talking about before. If you've got a variety of plants that support lots of different predators and parasitoids, uh, and a lot of these parasitoids are very specific. They'll usually hit one species. Basically, if your pest is in your garden, they'll be there because that's what they're after. Yep. And, yeah, by having uh, big populations of these other insects, you should not really need to spray, or you sh- you could use control just like getting them off manually or with something very benign, but yep. yeah, you really with a, with a um, diverse garden that should reduce most of those problems because they do come from having monocultures pretty well.
0: So greater diversity, native veg, these are the, from your perspective, Re- yep, things you be advising people Reduce yep. insecticides.
1: Yeah, I've got a whole list of things and <laughs> basically it starts with checking on your government, holding it to account checking that they do the right thing for nature, and if they promise something, make sure they do it. And we haven't got the journalists anymore to hold governments to account. So we all need to do it. Write to your MPs. And one thing that features uh, at the moment is the plans to change the Pastoral Lease Act, which affects 40% of South Australians' land. So what the what the Marshall government's planning to do, if they get re-elected, is remove the cap on grazing. That will be so detrimental to the the, uh, nature that is still out there in those pastoral lands that I encourage everyone, if you want to know more about that, go to the climate action stand that is here, and ask about it, and ask what you can do about it. Because there have been many letters already written to MPs, and there can be many more written. So uh, that is one thing. So other things are, of course, it's not only the state, it's, it's the local and the government level. Encourage plantings of trees, encourage We've seen so many heat islands arise in Adelaide, why aren't there the trees to protect that? We need, we need those trees. Okay, that is one thing. We also need to plant local native plants in our gardens, and um, we need to plant local native plants around their crops. We need to change the way we produce food to allow insects to be in there, in that landscape, And that means diversifying, reducing the scale, and that will get agricultural biodiversity back. So apart from protecting the native habitat that we have, enhance the agricultural landscape, enhance the urban landscape uh, for insects. Uh, If you want to put in a bee hotel, it's lovely. It's nice to make you see bees, but to encourage bees, you need plants because they need food, and that's what they're lacking in the landscape. Now the, one of the worst things you can do in urban environment is take a beehive. And I know that some of you will be out there saying, ah, oh, I've got a beehive, I thought I was doing something good. Well, you know, a beehive, when there's not enough food in the landscape, and you plonk in 30,000 mouths to feed. You can't be doing anything good. It's an introduced species, it's a pest species, it's a very weedy species, and what we need to do is get rid of our urban hives. If you want to buy honey, buy it from a professional beekeeper. We need honeybees for our crop pollination, our native bees generally don't do it, there's few species that do, but most of them like native foods. But. We don't need them in urban environments. If you want to do something for biodiversity, including for hollow-breeding birds and mammals, get rid of your beehives.
0: So, so if you're going to put a bee hotel in, you've got to make sure you include the cafe as well in terms of the native food. The, the hotel and the restaurant, hotel that's and what restaurant. I always no, say. That sounds good. Yeah. Perfect. And on the, on the other side you talked about the challenge of recovery but I know Richard in, in Kangaroo Island we've seen devastating bushfires which have absolutely wiped out the scales of the landscape but how does that recovery work and, and if, if the, the vegetation comes back how quickly do populations recover? What are you observing there?
3: Okay, so this is another one where we don't know. As in, the detail is going to be yeah. in the fine print. Yeah. So if you go to Kangaroo Island now, it's uh, it's high rainfall area, especially the west where it was burnt, uh, and the vegetation on the face of it's coming back. Uh, we, like, not many of the insects we knew what the population and the range were before, and that's common. So most species we just don't know how many there are and where they really are, and the totality mm-hmm. of it. Uh, so something I, I think. It's very diverse and you put heavy selection pressure on, so you're basically putting pressure on a population that's, you're going to live or die, so you're going to have winners and losers. There's no way around that. It's hard to know what they are because we don't know much about it, but uh, the carpenter bee is a really good example of how it can look okay but not be. So this is a bee that needs to, you can nest in uh, yakka spikes. So after you have a fire, on Kangaroo Island now there's lots of yakka spikes. Um, and it can't use them straight away, they need to die, uh, dry, and they sit on the plant for a few years and they can make nests in that. Once they're gone, uh, the only place they can nest is in uh, the trunks of dead banksia, and these banksia have to be large, they've got to you know, make trunks like this, they've got to get fairly big and then die, uh, and that takes minimum 30 years. A lot of the places we looked at, you'd go to 50 or 60 year old country and the banksias are all there but not dying yet, some places that age they would have. Uh, The best place for the carpenter bee was, that we knew of, was 90 years old. Uh, So what we've got is basically a situation where most of the banksia vegetation on Kangaroo Island's burnt, Uh, and so there's only very small areas where these bees can stay for a long time in the banksia, Uh, and that's a very small patch now, Uh, and so most of the island while the banksias are growing back, they will not be ready for that insect for many, many years. And if there's fires in the yeah. interim that take out other small patches, uh, that bee can just disappear. And it has from other places, so the Grampians. It's thought that a fire removed them from the Grampians not in, just before the Second World War. So, um, yeah, on the face of it, everything's okay, but it's hard to answer and there must be some losers out of it. Yeah, yeah and
1: of course Kangaroo Island is an island but the Grampians is also an island because it's an island in agricultural land where that bee cannot occur, right? And so it could never get back there unless we put it back there, yeah.
0: And, and this notion of pu- putting things back, of repopulation, again, uh, everything I'm
3: hearing is not easy and very complex. Yes, well, again, there's not really many examples of this. So I'm off the top of my head, I cannot think of something that's been extincted and then reintroduced into the wild, thats not a zoo, say, where it can just go back. Yeah, Yeah, so uh, it's it's a difficult one, uh, and, and there's a lot of other considerations. It can't just be that the habitat's there again, so there's some banksias now in the Grampians. Do you want to talk, Karch, about maybe the situation in the Grampians?
1: Yeah. um, There are small patches with suitable banks here to reintroduce that bee from around Sydney. The Sydney fires haven't been as impactful as the ones on Kangaroo Island. On Kangaroo Island, we're left with around 20 nests that we know of, which is is a tiny, tiny population size and fragmented on top of that. So whether they hang in there, we don't know. We could decide to reintroduce them there, but we want to know whether they come back by themselves first. And uh, we could consider trying to reintroduce them to the grampians in the hope that there is enough res- nesting resources there for them. Uh, it could be... It's, it's a toss-up, yeah.
2: Uh,
3: just even... Sorry. Even in no. answering... Uh, ans- asking the question we did, modelling of climate, so are those areas going to still be okay? And are the plants going to still be okay? So there needs to be quite a bit of science done before you can get to the point of doing it sort of thing. And the
0: message is it's, it's, it's habitats, not individual species really, that we're talking about here.
3: Yes, that thing of uh, retain. It's the cheapest yeah. and most effective way of keeping these things.
2: Rossi. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like doing all of these things will cost a lot of money. So yeah. it's probably, be- it's much better to retain. Retain. <laughs> <laughs> so, and
0: and I, I guess from, uh, from a, a kind of... I'm conscious we want to leave a little bit of time for questions at the end, but in terms of a, a kind of uh, five-minute wrap-up from, from each of you, in terms of the, your, your vision for the future of insects and where there, where there might be uh, wild ideas that, that are coming through the research, what, what's your take on the collectively on the future of our relationship with insects?
3: Uh, Well, from my perspective, uh, the the main thing for me is that I want to see is that they're taken seriously, I guess. Because we know that they're extremely important ecologically, more important than most other groups. Like, you're looking at fungi and bacteria would be the other things that do the stuff in the environment. So, yeah, for me, it's that uh, they're taken as seriously as the furry stuff because I'm I'm not not just talking about... uh, I mean, this is money I'm talking about, I guess, is that To me, governments don't take them very seriously. It's kind of too hard, there's lots of them, Uh, they're kind of like, if you want to do something like prescribed burning or something, it's just a bit of a pain if there's lots of things that need to be considered. So for me, it's that, it's that it's taken seriously by government, that they find ways to deal with uncertainty, because most places they are managing, they don't even know it's there. I think that's the thing for me, is and that uh, insects are, we fully utilise them in in ways like you're saying, so that basically they do have more of a value to us and to governments, and so we recognise that we recognise what they do to the environment and actually do something about it. I think that's the main thing for me. Take
0: them seriously. Is it- yeah, that's right. Great summary, Roth Yeah, uh,
2: more research on on the diversity of insects, but also on on all the uses coming from SARA, we do a lot of, so we, we, we like solving challenges and we use a lot of science and technology to, to solve these issues. And at the moment, we're looking into insects as uh, food, as feed, but also uh, for waste management. Um, and this is a really cool thing that is happening now. Like, there are co- colleagues in SARA that are looking into um, food waste management with uh, black soldier flies. And then this one, uh, then they, they feed the black soldier flies, uh, scrap foods, and then they use these uh, uh, flies to feed um, chicken. So it's part of the circular economy that nothing gets wasted, but also they're looking into using insects to, to manage plastics and, and sewage water with, um, from the toilets and stuff. <laughs> So, so lots of use. So, so find
0: find a greater impact on the economy beyond what Katja's already talked about around the, their impact on food and. Okay, so take them seriously, more research and understand, yeah, how to to work with them. Katja, from your point of view.
1: I got to say, educate, because um, many of you might be scary of insects or finding them crawly creepies and the. And and this is not how you're born. Very many young people love insects. Very many people take a caterpillar and rear it up or play with ants or do things, and then they lose it. They lose that touch with nature. And it's partly a matter of growing up, but it's partly a matter of what your environment, how your environment is looking at it. And to grab the young people, and make them aware of the importance of insects, the beauty of insects, the, how interesting they are, uh, and how interesting they are for your furry and feathery friends. That is where we um, need to need to need to be to 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 make them important, to to make them important for everyone, uh, and uh, and and that is, I think, what we need to do. Um, And uh, then on a larger scale, there are also things I can think about. Um, Of course, I mean, if you, um, yeah, we need to have climate action now. We um, need to have world peace. We need to have world equality, because equality is a fundamental thing that we really need uh to um, make sure that our uh, societies are not viewed as and, and managed as if they were economies that is that is really what I want to say <laughs> <laughs>
0: fantastic last summary. Take them seriously, understand them, understand our relationship with them, educate people about them, learn to love them and stay loving them, and make the world a more equal and uh, peaceful place. What a, If we do all those things, the insects will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, can please thank our panel. that has been fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Doug. Now, We've left a wee bit of time at the end of the session for you to educate yourselves some more by asking some questions of our panel. We've got some volunteers here with our microphones if anyone needs them. Um, oh, we've got some hands already. One of the things I, I do is ask with questions. We want to have time to get plenty of questions through, so please keep the questions short if you could, and um, more questions than policy statements, obviously. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Hello. If I were a uh, farmer, which I'm not, but if I were a pastoralist or an agriculturalist, what proportion of my land would I need to return to native plant biodiversity to allow insect biodiversity to recover on my property and to provide the functions that they will, will give me? Great question.
3: Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think f- just giving a figure it's not really the way to do it. The, the proximity matters, so the closer it is to the crop, and in fact that's industry advice. So if you're on the west coast of South Australia and growing grains, industry advice is to have uh, more native vegetation and make it close to the crop. So the closer to the crop it is, presumably you need less. Uh, I can't really comment on a percentage. One thing though is uh, that uh, there was modelling done maybe a decade ago about what uh, conservation practices, would have the most impact on preserving biodiversity. Uh, and, and most of the current things they looked at uh, didn't work, but they had uh, like a, an ideal goal of having the, uh, 30% coverage of veg- vegetation. So they just said, oh, we'll model that, and that actually worked to preserve biodiversity. So 30% native veg in the landscape is um, modeled to be effective at preserving biodiversity. So I would put it. Somewhere in that, uh, but it's an agricultural property that may not be able to give up that much. So I'd be thinking a quarter, roughly, something like that, but close to the crop.
1: Yeah. For bees, if you want pollination surfaces and pollination surfaces from wild bees, you'd be talking about 100, 150 meters from where you want your surfaces within that radius you want native vegetation that supports those bees at times that the crop is not in flower. So take canola, it flowers briefly, then the flowers are gone. It's herbicided, so there's no weeds to sustain those pollinators. So this is when, after that flowering, you will need some species, some nice spring flowering species to support those bees. Yeah.
0: Yeah, all good. Are there any other questions? Yes, there's a couple up the back. Sorry, we'll get a microphone to you as soon Oh, no, 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 sorry.
1: No, 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 We've got
2: one down here. Who had a
3: question up here? You now. Um, uh, given the relative importance of uh, insects that you've described, if we got rid of the kangaroo and the emu on the national emblem, uh, I wonder what you'd put there. I'd put ants for industry and dragonflies for beauty, but I'd be interested to hear what you'd put there.
0: Redesigning the emblem, which insects would we put either side of the shield?
3: Oh, I'd quite like the, the big bull ants, Mimicia. I mean, they're, they're endemic Australian. They're, um, got the right amount of aggression, I think, for a national one, <laughs> <laughs> and i will have a look after themself. So an <laughs> ant on one side and your moth on the other, is that what we're saying? Fantastic.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or a termite. Termite are our star uh, recyclers. We didn't talk very much about that, but uh, they are, in agricultural areas, uh, if they're not sprayed to death, the ones who uh, put um, uh, uh, organic matter back into the ground. Ant tunnel to allow water to get into the root zone. So they are really, really important in agricultural systems.
0: Ant on one side, termite on the other. So <laughs> what would you oh, add? I
2: don't know if I'm, if I'm, um, if I'm qualified to, 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 to do this. Not, I've just recently become an Australian citizen, so I cannot come. Oh. Well,
0: audience challenge go home and design a new national symbol with the kangaroo and emu replaced with insects. We have, oh, thank you.
3: Oh, hi. Uh, I'd just like to ask Richard and the panel, uh, continuing that theme of termites, Uh, they they haven't been mentioned, but they're clearly one of the most important groups uh, in terms of their impact on society and our our culture. Certainly in arid lands, uh, termites are known to be the principal grazers of grass, which is not generally known, but I was wondering what the panel thought with climate change and everything and termites being basically a warm climate species, whether they're likely to be more or less uh, important uh, in the future in terms of their economic impact on us. I don't know how to answer that really, as in, uh, I don't know whether it'll be less or more important, but my feeling, I don't know, you might want to comment, is that they're probably going to be less susceptible to climate change because they make their own climate essentially. So as long as they've still got the the substrate to make their mounds and they can still swarm in humid conditions, they probably will still be okay. But I don't, I, I don't know if that... I think it will depend on whether the waste or the, the organic matter that they need to get rid of
1: increases or not, I guess. Exactly. That's what I wanted to say. It depends on the level of aridity we're going to achieve, because termites need plants to eat and, uh, and, and they're very good at, at existing in arid conditions. Uh, but if we overgraze... Uh, which is very much happening in the center, we we'll, would we'll see less termites. And uh, if we get to the level of aridity that plants can't really grow, then I think that termites would have an issue with that. Mm. Uh, but on the whole, I think, uh, well, different insects will be affected in different ways by climate change. And that is, um, and, and some may even increase, and some may move southward. Uh, uh, or f- even fall off the map, uh, but uh, you can't generalise with such a big group, that's the problem. Great question, thank you. Okay, I've got a couple more,
0: I've seen
2: a couple of hands down the
0: front, yeah.
2: Um, hello, can you tell us the effect of genetically modified canola on bees?
1: Genetically modified canola is a godsend for bees, um, yes really, because uh, basically, the genetic modification makes sure that caterpillars cannot feed on that canola, and that means that less insecticides need to be sprayed, and that means that bees who are not affected by this, uh, because it's not much expressed, uh, it's, it's not toxic to bees, and it's not much expressed in the pollen and nectar anyway. So that means that bees can exist in the landscape, whereas with insecticidal sprays, they could not. So I'm all for genetically modified cotton, genetically modified canola when it is to control insects. What I'm not in favor of is genetically modified for weeds, because that allows us to uh, to spray everything that supports any insects out of the landscape. Uh, Uh, So, in a normal crop, you'd have some weeds that support uh, useful insects, and nearly all flying insects need some nectar. So they would be supported when the crop is not in flower by those weeds. But if you spray them out and your crop is resistant to the herbicide, then you will lose those insects in the crop.
3: Yeah, the the genetic modification that uh, is related to herbicide resistance can cause some issues, but generally when they put insecticide resistance into a crop, it's better for the environment because the insecticide is usually a more benign form uh, that targets one or two insects, and it's only, in the pl- it's only when they eat the plant they get it rather than farmers spraying it all over the landscape and killing whatever's there. So basically it, it's just a much more targeted way to have insecticide in the crop without spraying it everywhere, and, and also lower concentrations.
1: Yeah, and it's BT that they build into yeah. the modified crop. And BT is allowed in organic use. So that's, uh, that, that's what you n- need to know about that. Thank you. Um, is there any um, animals that we could, like, bring from other countries that might help the animals here, the insects
3: here? Interesting question. Ah, Well, uh, in general it's not really good to bring things from overseas into a country just because they can become pests because the the normal insects that eat them aren't there anymore. Uh, So most of the insects we bought into Australia, well the honeybee is one which was bought for honey by Europeans when they came. So that kind of was a a product they could get from the insects, but most of the other ones have been for biocontrol. So for example, um, aphids on rose plants, you would have seen all the aphids get on the roses. Well, we've imported into Australia oh, tens of um, wasps from overseas that just attack aphids. So um, we try not to import uh, animals for other reasons really. The only real reason you can bring in something to Australia these days is to actually control a pest, and there's different examples of that, but to do that a lot of research is needed. I actually ran a program to, uh, to release a, a wasp of an aphid that's in pine trees, and that took seven to eight years of research and trying to show that it wouldn't attack things you didn't want it to attack. So yeah, it's done a little bit, but usually only for insects that are control pests, and it takes a long time to get all the data, we need to make sure that's a safe thing to do.
1: Yeah. We have to be very careful there. Yeah. Uh, obviously, <laughs> we introduced a whole heap of problematic species to control other problematic species. We introduced cane toads. We introduced foxes to control our rabbits, and it went out of hand. So we, we really want to be careful, but yes, we do it to control crop pests. Yeah. Thank that's you. Perfect. Hi. Um, given the decline
3: in European honeybee numbers around the world and also their effect on ecosystems in Australia as a feral species, do you think that there is an overall negative net impact on biodiversity from feral honeybees, like thinking about all their pollination? And do you think that any campaigns in the future to save bees need to include the European honeybee in Australia, or are there other alternatives?
1: Well, I'll answer the part of your question about um, uh, the the decline of honeybees. There is no decline of honeybees. The number of managed honeybee hives have nearly doubled since the 1960s. So, it's a message that is very much repeated by beekeeping industries worldwide, that. Yes, they have problems outside of Australia with maintaining their house, but it's a managed animal. They can do it. Uh, We're not asking whether cows are in decline, not even when there's mad cow disease around, because we know how to breed cows. Well, we know how to breed bees. In some cases, beekeepers struggle to find uh, sites where they can produce honey, and climate change has really got... Uh, into that, but to for conservation in Australia bees honeybees are a negative impact. Do so you have a negative impact only right? We need them for crop pollination we don 't need them in conservation areas
3: well yeah, I agree I think um, honeybees is one of the kind of strangest topics in entomology because they because of their social structure, they're very highly studied and they're very well known. And they're also well known because they're highly invasive and are basically in most areas of the world where there's water available, basically. So, um, yeah, it's a difficult one because, yeah, I see them as probably the biggest pest in Australia. I, I can't give you numbers on that, but they have profound impacts on the environment. They're in large numbers, uh, they're ubiquitous, They pollinate some plants extremely well. So, things like uh, myrtaceae, things like um, uh, bottle brushes, gum trees, things like that that have brush flowers. Uh, Honeybees and a lot of other things pollinate them really well. But lots of things like orchids, uh, lilies, there's a whole range of plants uh, that honeybees can't pollinate. So, we've got a situation where we've got the pollination of some plants turned up to the max more than. What would be happening normally, combined with other plants, which are usually small things in the understory, not getting, basically getting pollinated relatively less. So in my opinion, they would have probably changed the seed bank of st- in the areas where they are over the 200 years they've been here. Uh, so I think they probably have had quite profound effects, even with fire, I would say. Oh, I feel like they would increase the number of uh, fire parts that burn well in the environment. So the problem is when you do experiments you need a control, so you need an area where there's no bees basically to look at what the effect is, uh, but we don't have that anywhere in Australia so we have to do basically either manipulate the system or have huge amounts of replication, basically different sites that have the same characteristics to tell if what the honeybees are doing is due to the honeybees or it's some other effect that we don't know about. So. It's not been pinned down yet, but they have uh, effects on pollination, they transmit disease, they're basically riddled with viruses and diseases, Uh, so overseas that's been the issue. This is why there's been an issue overseas, they have uh, a mite, the varroa mite, that's coming to America, which we don't have, Uh, they have a whole bunch of viruses have to treat the might with no, really, might side.
0: I'm, I'm really sorry we, we, uh-huh. we're on a hard deadline because oh, okay. there's going to be music
3: very soon and do it so uh-huh. um, if you could just wind that up because we're going to have to wrap up and go. Yeah the short answer is I think they've had a major impact uh, and I think we'll learn more about that as time goes on.
0: So uh, look uh, fantastic question, you know that's a good question when you get yeah, that detailed answers so thank you all very much, thank you to the panel, it's been fantastic thank you, thank you for coming today.